But we learned in Psalm 22 about this cry of dereliction, which we hear echoed in Jesus' own lips on the cross. We learned in Psalm 23 of the shepherd who, you might say, therefore, acknowledging these, these times and seasons of misery in our life, comes alongside us as a shepherd, meek, gentle, lowly. Jesus himself using those words to describe him in his ministry. But lest we think that this is simply a sort of soft pastoral image, we are confronted with the king of glory in 24. I do think there's a, a, you might say, a reason and a rhyme to the ordering of the Psalms. That is a fun talk for another time. But what I want to show you this morning is that the king of glory means for us to be greatly reassured, if at first confronted by our sin, but at the, by the end of this psalm, greatly reassured in the might and power of our God. The Apostle Paul uh, says at one point in his letters that one of the most terrible things that confronts Christians is believing in a form of godliness, but that godliness having no power. We are confronted in Psalm 24 with a mighty God. If you'll go there with me. The earth is the Lord's. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For He, that is Yahweh, has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, that's Yahweh of the armies. He is the King of glory. This is the Word of God, and so again we say, thanks be to God. Psalm 24, it's really, I mean, we'll just start off to say, it's interesting in how it's constructed. Starts off, verses 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell in therein. how, How has He made it? Founded it upon the seas, established it on the rivers. Okay, so we have the Creator of everything. It's actually the same way, in, in a way, it's the same way we started off our worship service this morning, proclaiming who our God is. He's, he is mighty and adoring Him. Then verse 3 asks a question about this God. Knowing that, that this God owns everything, who can approach Him? The language there, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can go to where God dwells? All right. So here's the job description. Clean hands, a pure heart, doesn't lift up his soul to what is false, doesn't swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from God, blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. 
Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And so the, the image I want you to have of this psalm, it's almost like imagine you're, you're sitting in Jerusalem and there's a, there's a preacher in the middle of the city asking this question, who will ascend the hill of this God? Who will go to where he is? Here's the, the as I said, the, the sort of job description, clean hands, pure heart, and so on. And then it's, it's almost behind him a watchman from the wall calls out, who is it that's approaching? Who is it that's coming into the city? And the answer is the King, the Lord, Yahweh of might and power. And so we, we start off with this declaration that the earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and everything. He's the one who made it. If, if you make something, broadly, generally speaking, if you make something, you're the one who owns it. And so the Lord has made the earth and everything that's in it. Therefore, everything belongs to Him. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. That one sounds kind of odd at first. This is a Hebraic way of talking about the way God set up the world. With the heavens at the top, where, where God dwells, then the sky, then the earth. Uh, and, and by that I mean not the less think less the globe and more the dirt on which you stand so the earth and then underneath the uh, uh, waters waters or the deeps in other places of the old testament and so it was a common way to speak of of the waters as the foundation for the land and the earth and the nations because of again if you think of that sort of fourfold um, uh, kind of places uh, god built the earth almost like a tower and so you have level 4, 3, 2, and 1. Or probably better said, levels 3, 2, 1 in basement. Uh, David starts here. God owns it all. Why? I would offer to you, I think it's the most common sin, the sin that most often goes unnoticed in our lives and the lives of those we love, is that we live... Not in open rebellion, sort of writing screeds against God on social media. The most common sin is that we just live as though God doesn't matter. As though He's irrelevant. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Do we have that one? Yeah. Oop, oop, that's Psalm 24. There we are. For although they, that is the unbelieving, uh, Paul's actually large, uh, more generally talking about the pagan world, They knew God, they had knowledge of God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says that all men have a sense in them, a sense in them, that there is a God. Now, over time and with enough effort, you can suppress that knowledge within yourself, but the most common sin in the human race is that we simply want to live as though God's irrelevant. As though this reality isn't true. What, what I mean is that most atheism in the world does not look like the angry man ranting about how all Christians are fools. I know you, you might see that a lot, but I'm, I'm convinced that most, uh, you might call it functional atheism, is simply living as though God didn't exist. That is, the way you live and the way you, you uh, would live if you worshipped God, right? It's just, there's really no difference. Most atheism today is not expressed as aggressive hatred of religion, I think. Most atheism today is passive carelessness about God. And I say most 
because that's the kind of, if I can put it this way, that's the kind of atheism that gets into our pews. What David and plenty of other psalmists want you and I to know about and to sing about is that life is lived in a constant state of being before God. We talked about this on Wednesday night. The Latin phrase, coram Deo, before the face of God. That you are always living before the face of God. And what David is saying here, and along with Paul, is that what that should cause is honor toward God and giving thanks to Him. Okay? So what are, what are the principal causes of atheism in the world? People do not want to honor this God and people do not want to say thank you to this God. We have been trained, I think, to believe that being amazed by God and constantly thankful before God is only for like super Christians, like really, really spiritual Christians. But in fact, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So that covers everything. And everything means everything. And we are therefore called to be a people who honor God and thank Him in the midst of all of our daily activities and blessings. So there's an exercise I would commend to you that I try to do. I won't say I always do it perfectly. Just life happens. But... um, when I, uh, when I first became a pastor, my mentor, Jason Wood, in, in Covington, Louisiana, really encouraged me to do what he called a, uh, a, a, a workday startup and a workday shutdown. So at the start of every, uh, you know, every workday, broadly speaking, I pretty much do the same thing. And at the end of every workday, I pretty much do the same thing. But the end of the workday, part of it involves I have to come up with at least three things that happened that were good, Three things that happened that were failures or could have gone better. And three things that I'm grateful for. Okay? And it, I mean, it, I, it's, it's, not a, it's not a strict legalism. It can be the coffee was hot this morning. Okay? That counts as an item of gratitude. Why am I telling you that story? I'm, I'm breaking a preacher rule, which is never be the hero in your own story. What, what I'm trying to tell you is that that actually, think patterns and habits like that help you to cultivate a, not just a heart of gratitude, but eyes that notice it. Right? And so you're looking around and you're starting to identify lots and lots of things as things you ought to be grateful for and thank God for. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The fact that your coffee was hot this morning was by the kindness of God. Does that sound weird? I hope it sounds a little weird. While we're here in verses 1 and 2, I'm going to spend most of my time in verses 1 and 2, by the way, because... Verses 1 and 2 are the only ones that get, uh, or this, this content from verses 1 and 2 is the only one that gets explicitly quoted in the New Testament. Why don't we go there? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Thank you. Beginning at verse 23. I'm going to give you a little bit of background, and then we're going to talk about this text because it's really interesting. Animal sacrifices were a very common part of paganism in the first century. And if you were a pagan priest at a pagan temple in a city like Corinth, you've probably made a pretty decent living. Let me explain. At the very least, your, your food was taken care of because people would bring to you the animal to sacrifice and eating the animal sacrifice, cooked, by the way, you had to, you know, you had to put the sacrifice over the fire, so essentially you're eating the cooked meat, and that was how the priest stayed fed. So you have your meal ticket taken care of, but let's say you have a really busy day. A lot of people are coming through to offer sacrifices to 
quite literally God knows who. But let's say there's a lot more sacrifice than there is room in your stomach. Well, that's a lot of, that's a lot of meat, more than you can eat, so what do you do with it? Well, if you're a smart entrepreneur, you're going to sell it. Okay? And that's a smart side hustle. Let me tell you why. Because if you think about it, if you're a pagan trying to please the pagan gods by way of meat sacrifice, are you going to bring some sad, pathetic, sick little animal? Yes or no? No. That's a good way in paganism to make the god really angry. You want to bring the best. And if you're a, a priest in the temple looking to make a little extra money, well, how much did that meat from that sacrifice cost you? Zero. So it's pure profit. So you can sell it cheapest in town, and it's pure profit, and it's the best cut of meat. You can see why this gains some popularity as a little bit of a a side income. Think of the business opportunity. Best cuts of meat for cheap. So as you might imagine, word got around real fast that if you want the best cuts at shockingly low prices, you can go have a chat with your local pagan priest, and he'll set you up good. Speaking in broad generalities here. The problem was that you had a lot of new Christians in Corinth, and they had some real fears about this. I mean, you have to imagine, they've spent their whole lives in the dark, demonic depths of paganism and pagan worship, and here's this priest selling meat that was offered up in demonic ceremonies, best they know, are we allowed to eat that? I mean, parties of you is like, maybe? And then parties of you is also like, no, that doesn't sound smart. I mean, if... You know, if this is used in some kind of demonic ceremony, it might have demonic elements in it or attached to it. At least that was some of the running thinking. Let's look at how Paul handles that. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question of conscience. Why? For the earth is the Lord's, Psalm 24, and the fullness thereof. So Paul's answer, right? Am I allowed to eat it? What is, what is Paul's answer? Yes, it's God's meat. God made it. Eat the meat, right? That's basically Paul's answer. It's God's meat. God made it. You can eat the meat. Go on, please. You might add a however. However, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, you're disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. That is, um, where'd you get this steak from? (laughs) I I simply would like to know before I uh, start chowing down. But if someone says to you, well, this has been offered in sacrifice. Okay, now think of the context. We're talking unbeliever inviting you to dinner. Then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience. So Paul's answer to this problem is, first of all, to quote Psalm 24, the earth is the, Lord and the, full, the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, God's meat, you can eat it, pass the salt, grab the steak, knives, let's go. It belongs to God no matter what kind of idolatrous nonsense has happened around it. Unless... Okay, unless, is verse 27, 28, if you're eating dinner with a pagan, he sets the steak in front of you, go ahead and enjoy it. Don't subject him to a bunch of questions. But if he says, I think you'll like it. I picked it up today from that priest over at the temple of the goddess Diana or whatever. Paul says at that point, you say, I'm, I'm real sorry, I, I can't eat this. That's kind of weird. What's his reason? Paul's reason, he says, for the sake of conscience. In other words, your neighbor, 
your pagan neighbor, your unbelieving neighbor that you're sitting down to dinner with actually believes that the meat is part of the worship and spirituality of his false gods. So is it fine for you to eat? Well, yes, but in this instance, you can't. Because the last thing you want to do is send the message that Jesus doesn't care about how you worship him or whether you worship other gods or whether the, the, uh, you worship him alone. Okay. Now, he expands more on this few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 8. We won't go there, but I'm going to give you another example to work with here. Let's imagine, in in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about what if it's not an unbeliever? What if it's a new believer who might still be wrestling with the, you know, I just left paganism. And this kind of weirds me out, seeing this meat on my plate that I know was offered to a false god. Well, okay, let's imagine that a drunkard gets saved. He begins to find freedom from the bottle by faith in Christ with the help of his brothers. His problem, though, one that might not pursue him for the rest of his life, but one that will pursue him for a good while, probably, is that he cannot disassociate drinking from drunkenness. Okay? He can't disassociate. Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 refers to such a man as the weaker brother. Weaker because he cannot make this distinction between having a drink and having a lot of them can't separate the thing from the evil, sinful way in which it's used. And so what does Paul say? Paul basically says, if a thing is used for evil purposes, again, think of of the meat sacrificed or whether it's alcohol, is that thing therefore unusable? Paul's answer is no. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But for the sake of your brother, you don't go parading your liberty around guzzling a beer in his face. Now, do you have the liberty? Yes. Can that liberty be abused? And are you then sinning? Yes. Can you go too far with this? Well, sure. (laughs) We tend to go too far with just about everything. Usually the way Christians go too far with something like this is that we take a matter of liberty, like consumption of alcohol, and we turn it into a matter of law. We forbid it from anyone at any time, any place, anywhere. That was what happened in the 1920s with the Prohibition Movement when it became illegal to buy or to sell alcohol in this country. Why did that happen? Did it happen just because some people just happened to not like alcohol? No, it was because towns were tired of their town drunks. And plenty of, uh, not a small amount of women were tired of their husbands staggering home from the bar, especially the violent ones. Prohibition was an attempt to correct that problem. Fun fact, before 1920, even the Baptist churches used wine in the Lord's Supper. I simply note that in passing. (laughs) There is a legalism we want to guard against. We also want to guard against the opposite, which is, if you can't find the explicit verse that prohibits me from what I'm about to do, I'm going to do it, right? The earth is the Lord and everything in it, right? That means it's okay for me to stay up till 3 a.m. playing video games because you can't find a verse that says I can't. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So that means uh, God doesn't care how I dress, right? God doesn't care if I dress modestly or immodestly because all that stuff, all the elements of clothes belong to the Lord. He made it and I can just use it however I want. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, so I can gamble away half my paycheck. There's not a verse that says I can't. 
When that attitude begins to pop up, you begin to see why Paul says, do not use your liberty as an excuse to sin. Right? Christian liberty is not a blank check to spend on your lusts and your impulses. That's part of the point that Paul's making. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This should call us, Romans 1, to awe, to to honor God, to be thankful for everything we have because everything we have is a borrowed gift from the Creator who owns all things. And if we use those things, whatever they are, as an opportunity to sin or to cause others to sin, basically uh, Paul's answer is, woe to you. What are you thinking? Let's go back to Psalm 24. Verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? So we have a, a picture then of how great and, and mighty and, and holy is this God who owns all things. And this question is, who can tolerate being in that God's presence? Who shall stand in His holy place? This God who owns all things, well, His, His holiness presents a problem. Sin and the fall and the, the problem of our selfish, sinful hearts make us guilty before this God who owns all things. The fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden was broken in the fall. And so David asks, who exactly can climb the mountain, as it were, into God's presence? Who shall ascend to the heavenly holy place? The answer is that the only ones who can do that are people who are themselves holy. Okay? So David begins with some identifiers here. He starts with an external life, right? Clean hands. External. Clean hands meaning the work you do uh, throughout the day, whether it's for your vocation or not, the stuff you do, the actions you take is clean work. You, that is, you use your strength and your gifts and your skills and your resources to bless others, not to sin and forget God. David then moves to the internal life. A pure heart. That's the internal state given over to loving this God and does not lift up his soul to what is false so to to lift up your soul was it was a Hebraic way of speaking you you might you might understand it and man this was amazing I thought this was amazing when I first read it could be understood as to cultivate your appetite okay to lift up your soul is to cultivate your appetite Did you know that your soul, as it were, hungers for things, but that hunger is very much dependent on what you feed it? It's it's in many ways a conditioned hunger. Now, our modern world teaches that you have no power over the things you want. You are born wanting some things and not others. You're born with certain desires and whatever, attractions and longings, and you simply have to obey them or they will drive you mad. Fun fact, that's Sigmund Freud, not God. This is one of the biggest lies that has ever been told. And the great scandal is not simply that many Christians believe it. They believe that God Almighty is powerless to do anything about it. So many of us have bought into the lie that there's something I really want. So that means I either have to get it or just make peace with misery upon misery upon misery. There's no other option. And it remains to be seen whether there are churches left who will commit themselves to seeing the next generation set free from this lie. Because the reality is, when there's a sinful impulse and tendency in us, we keep feeding it. A little here, a little there. We keep 
lifting up our appetites and our desires, our very souls, to the Hebrew word is worthless things. You can also translate it idols. And so we have the the external clean hands, internal pure heart. Internal doesn't lift up his soul to what is false, worthless, and idol. And does not swear deceitfully. Now it's public social. He does not swear deceitfully. In other words, he's not a liar. So where can you find a man like this, with this kind of pedigree and with this kind of spiritual resume? I know the answer. Nowhere. All those who come to God do so with hands that are not clean, hearts that are not pure, lips that have not always been honest, souls that have been captivated by invitations of worthlessness. What do they need? They need to be rescued and redeemed, as it were, brought into the holiness, but not be consumed by it. Brought out of filth and into a clean state before God. And this is, in fact, precisely what the blood of Jesus does. Is it not interesting that in verse 5, we read that He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. I mean, it sounds like clean hands, pure heart, doesn't lift up his soul, doesn't swear deceitfully. Why does he need to receive righteousness? Poetically, it is that you put one before the other. It is indeed the man with clean hands and pure heart who also gets to be the man who can tell everyone, I have received righteousness. I mean, it sounds like he doesn't need it, but that's precisely why these things are mentioned together. Here's the the great news. God always gives to you what He commands of you. God always gives to you what He commands of you. He calls us to holiness, and then He gives us His. He calls us to love, and then He fills our heart so we can do it. He calls us to forgive, right? Oh my goodness, for, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What's he then going to do? He's going to say, look, look to me and look at what you've been forgiven of. And I'm going to give you the strength to forgive. He calls us out of our doubt and unbelief. And then he's the one that fills our hearts with faith. And so when you see a list like this, clean hands, pure heart, soul kept from idolatry, avoiding dishonesty, lies, Know that, that only Jesus Christ can and has done this perfectly. And here's, here's the good news. Because Jesus Christ has ascended the dark hill of Calvary, He presents us to the Father. Washed by our baptism. Fed by His body and blood. Strengthened by His Word and Spirit. So that when Jesus ascends up to heaven, He's got us in His hands. And He brings us up before the Father. And we stand before God saying, apart from His blood, I have no right to be here. But God has descended so that man might ascend and know God. That we might walk in His ways and and love Him. That's what it means, by the way, to seek His face. Such is the generation of those who seek Him. Is that a hard thing to do? Yes. That's why he mentions Jacob. Remember what Jacob did? He had a little wrestling match. And he limped for the rest of his life. So there is a rough and tumble to this holiness. Sometimes it's going to hurt. I think one of the things that I really had to kind of have 
taught out of me, so to speak, is this idea that if pursuing God and, and following God and obeying what God has said, like if it, if it hurts or if it's hard, something must be wrong. Because this is just supposed to be easy, right? Obedience, right? I'm a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit. This is just supposed to be easy. <laughs> when you find that written in the Bible, you let me know. I still haven't found it. No, it's hard. Don't fall for the lie that, oh, this is actually hard, so I must be doing something wrong. No, if you're, if you're struggling, right? Uh, people who are far from God don't struggle with their sin. They embrace it. So if you're struggling and you're hating your sin, congratulations, there's the Holy Spirit is at work. And so that's what it means to seek His face. To seek the face of God is to set your mind and heart to the things of God. To live as though God is God, right? To, not to live as though God has not made the world and, and owns the fullness thereof. To long for His sanctification. That is, that His Word would be worked into you and then by the Holy Spirit, as it were, worked out of you. And then the psalm changes key. You have the Selah at the end of verse 6 and then verse 7. This, this lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, ancient doors, so that the King of glory may come in. And it gets repeated in verse 9. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. When we read these closing verses, the picture really is remarkable. You have this God who created the heavens and the earth, you have this question, who can be with this God? The answer is a man who receives righteousness from the Lord. This is exactly what has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that He has put His perfect righteousness on us. We have received it, and He's taken on our sin. And then, So you wonder, how can this happen? What happens next? What happens next is the Lord enters the city. This scene is like a watchman on the walls calling out, saying, who goes there? And the answer is Yahweh, strong and mighty. The gates are then told to, to lift up their heads. If you think of a, a, a portcullis as that gate that comes down uh, top to bottom in, in a castle. In, in that sense, it's, it's saying lift up those gates. So to speak, as, as it were, the, the very gates lifting up their heads in joy to welcome in the king. This is a picture of the king entering his kingdom. And even though, I'll grant you, even though the New Testament does not clearly spell this out as much as Brian Rhodes would like, I don't wonder if we're meant to see Jesus here returning from battle, nail marks in his hands, marks of thorns in his head, having conquered sin and death, by His blood on the cross. He has died. He descends into the depths. He comes up having defeated death and hell, rising again, and then He ascends to the hill of the Lord and brings with Him those to whom He's given His perfect righteousness. Those whose sins are forgiven. And He comes in to the halls of heaven, so to speak, with the head of Goliath in his right hand, saying, I have returned home, having conquered sin and death. The, the greater David returns home. Who will ascend? The answer is Jesus Christ. Who will join him? Those to whom he gives his righteousness. And who are they? Those who believe. 
those whose sins are forgiven. He will bring us to His own holy hill, for He has already ascended to the heavenly places, and He means to raise us up to meet with Him there. This is why we gather every Sunday, to celebrate the reality that our King has come home triumphant in victory. We join our voices with the heavenly angels and with all of the saints who have gone before us. What's given to us today then is to invite others to the feast. The only problem that confronts us right now is apparently, according to the Lord's providence and will, there are not enough voices in New Jerusalem. The songs are not loud enough yet. So Jesus has told us to go and find His people. To go and find the generation that seeks His face. And He can do this because, you know why? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. It all belongs to Him. Yes, there was a rebellion. The Lord's answer was to come down Himself and rescue it and redeem it. And He is gathering people from generation to generation for years and years until all the redeemed children of Abraham really are like grains of sand on the seashore. Count them if you can, I dare you. In the name of Jesus, our King of glory. Amen. Our Father, we ask indeed that you would meet with us here as we ponder this question today and throughout the week. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Father, the, 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 the more clearly we see our own sin, the more, the more loudly we cry out with the, pub, uh, with the publican, with the tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so, our Father, you have for an, forever answered that prayer. In Jesus, your Son, our Lord. And as we wait for the day when He gathers all the nations to Himself in His glory, when the heads of the gates of a new heaven and a new earth will be opened, where we will live forever. Oh Lord, we pray, give us steadiness and faithfulness as we wait for that day. Our King of glory, in Jesus' name.